0: Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here uh, today. She's really the, the brains behind the operation. You know, I got a chuckle. Pastor Pyatt said, you know, I was really surprised that he seemed like he knew a lot. I thought, I'm thinking to myself, what well, he probably looked at me and thought, man, that guy doesn't look very smart. And then <laughs> got up and spoke and He said, oh, I guess he is kind of smart. I, I don't know. But she's really the brains, uh, brains behind the, uh, the operation and really appreciate. It. So take time to come see us out at the table. Uh, of course, we'll have time to fellowship together at the meal. And then hopefully you'll have some questions and stick around for the final session, and then uh, and then some Q and A time uh, as well. But when you when when Pastor Pyatt made that comment about, well, I was kind of surprised at how how smart he was. It reminded me of an experience I had at a church one time. After I preached, I was standing at the back with the pastor as people left, just greeting them, you know, like you do, saying hello and thanks for coming, and they would say the usual, you know, thanks for being here, good message, appreciated your message, Pastor. Well, this one lady came through, and she said, that was the worst message I've ever heard. I want you to know. (laughs) But she moved on, and the next people came back by, and I really didn't have time to think about it, but after a minute or so, she came back through again, same lady, and she said, and by the way, that's the ugliest suit I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) She went on through. She came back one more time, a moment or two later, and she said, "And by the way, none of your jokes were funny. That was—they were just terrible." I was just dumbfounded. I thought, "Man, she really let me have it." So I asked the pastor. I said, "What is the deal? Who, what's the, who is this lady?" And he goes, "Ah, oh, don't worry much about that. That's just Ethel. We don't—we don't really pay much attention to Ethel. She's kind of crazy. She just sort of goes around repeating what she hears everybody else saying." So that—that uh, that, that made me feel—that made me feel a whole lot better. Um, so uh, this morning, if you missed the first session, um, you know we're gonna we're gonna post that at least at Not By Works uh, Ministry website here later this week. But uh, I encourage you to go back and watch it because I provided an overview of what uh, I call the spirit of the antichrist, the gathering cloud of uh, deception, and it's based on 1 John uh, chapter two that tells us many antichrists have already come, and chapter four that tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work uh, among us. And I just touched on a couple of things in the first session that are manifestations of that spirit of the Antichrist, great deceptions that uh, have really kind of swept across uh, the globe, and especially in this country. I get into many more in the book or the DVD series, but at the end of the book I have a chapter in which I sort of answer the so what question. What do we do with this information? What does this mean to us? How can we hedge ourselves against... Satan's deception and that's what I want to share with you uh, this morning so if you have your Bibles let me encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 3 uh, Genesis chapter 3 and I want to talk about how to avoid being deceived and as I mentioned in the first hour you know Satan is not very creative you know he uses the same tired old tricks that he used in the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve and and so uh, if we really want to learn, Uh, the anatomy of deception, or what I call Satan's MO, we need to go back to the beginning and kind of see what he did there. And I think you'll find that he's doing the same thing today. In fact, all deception is rooted in this same methodology. And you kind of learn to identify it, and you can spot it a mile away. And so we're going to kind of walk through Genesis chapter 3 verse by verse, and then uh, I'll close out. with going back to 1 John chapter 4 and taking some of John's advice about how to recognize a false teaching. So it begins in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That word cunning or subtle as it's uh, uh, listed there in the King James is actually the Hebrew word achrum, and it's an interesting word. It's only used 11 times in the whole Hebrew Old Testament. And it has the idea of cunning, crafty, and shrewd. And what's interesting about it is sometimes it can be used in a positive sense. The Proverbs uses this word to speak of godly wisdom and prudence. But obviously, here in Genesis 3 1, it has a negative connotation. And it's referring to the Satan's craftiness uh, as he approached uh, the woman. It's also connected in the Hebrew text back to chapter 2, verse 25, in sort of a word play. Uh, You know, uh, Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us in chapter 2, were naked, which is the Hebrew word ahurumim, kind of a plural. And the serpent here is said to be ahurum. In other words, their nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, oblivious to evil, blind to the traps that Satan was trying to. To let for them, whereas Satan did and would use his craftiness, again, there's that play on words, to take advantage of uh, their ignorance. And so uh, the tempter we know, of course, was Satan. It's interesting, you'll look throughout the entire book of Genesis, you'll never find a single reference to the devil or Satan. It's not those words aren't used, but we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture, when you go to Revelation chapter 12, that that old serpent is called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. So that's who we're dealing with here. The serpent is Satan. The fact that he manifested as a snake suggests that temptation often comes in disguise, quite unexpectedly. Uh, And it's interesting that it often comes from a subordinate. Remember, God had told Adam and Eve they have dominion over all the animals, and yet someone whom they should have had the ability to exercise authority over came and, and tempted them. It's also interesting in the ancient Near East in the pagan religions that surrounded Judaism, the serpent was worshipped by pagans as their symbol of life. So God's word is here reminding us that a pagan's symbol of life is actually the cause of death because through Satan the serpent brought death into the world. So divinity is not achieved as Satan promised that it would be. uh, We'll see that in verse 5 in a moment by following pagan beliefs and myths and symbols. That's the way of death. Not life. God, the Creator, brings life. God, the Creator, brings life. Not death. God is not the author of death. Satan is the author of death. We read in John's uh, Gospel, All things were made by Him, that's Christ, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In his epistle, he goes on to say, This is the record that God hath given us eternal life. And where is that life? in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So really this cosmic struggle that began in the garden that we talked about in the first session that is still raging to this day and I believe reaching new unprecedented heights today as a sign of the times that we're getting closer and closer uh, to the end times, really is a battle between life and death. It's a battle obviously between God and Satan, between right and wrong, but ultimately it's a battle between life and death. And as we look more closely at Genesis 3, five core components of deception kind of emerge. It's an anatomy of deception. The origin of deception can be traced all the way back to Satan's approach in the garden. It's really Satan's battle plan. And the first step is to question truth, to question truth. Satan questioned God's word. Remember what he said, Yea, half God said. Can we we really trust God's word? Can we really trust anything? Is there really truth? That's the question that was at the heart of Pilate's question to Jesus some 4,000 years later when he said, what is truth? What is truth? So it begins by questioning truth. And underlying that question that Satan asked, yea, hath God indeed said, is the, the premise that God's word, which today is the Bible, See, this is everything we need for life and godliness. This is the the, the infallible word of God. 3,800 times this book says, thus saith the Lord. This is God's self-revelation to mankind. It's his unveiling of himself. I like to say the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. This is God's revelation to mankind. And it's everything we need. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit like joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so at the time, God's word was represented by God's actual conversation, God the creator of the universe, with Adam and Eve. But the principle is still true today. Satan tries to get people to think that God's word, the Bible, is questionable. That's the first step. Deception always begins by planting a seed of doubt. And then uh, the second step, is to misrepresent truth, to misrepresent truth. So after saying, yea, hath God indeed said, he goes on to sort of imply that truth is a matter of opinion. He says, has God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now let me ask you, is that what God said? Is that actually what God had said? Let's go back and take a look. In chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Big difference. Satan misrepresented what God had said. So not only does he question the trustworthiness of God, but he actually put words in God's mouth and and, and misrepresented what he had said. And Eve, who was influenced by Satan's misrepresentation, likewise in her response misrepresented the truth of God. God's word we read going back to chapter 3 the woman said unto the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden God hath said ye shall not eat of it neither shall ye touch it is that what God said no we just read it God didn't say that at all he said in the day you eat of it you'll surely die he said nothing about touching it of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat the day thou eatest thereof that's all he said That's all he said. And then not only that, but Eve also downplayed the consequences in her response. She said that God had said, lest you die. Is that what God said? Thou shalt surely die. See, so by planting the seed of doubt and questioning truth and then misrepresenting truth, Satan begins to imply that truth is really a matter of opinion. The details don't matter. And, and, and it's it's the second step here is to make truth broader, less precise, open to interpretation, subject to opinion. And the quest for deception always starts with those two steps. Misrepresent truth. It's a moving target. It's able to be manipulated. It's able to be spun. It's a matter of opinion. And it's easy to see how today that weapon is still very much in play uh, you know today we're we're all about the spin and not the substance we're all about you know the the, the showiness the outward appearance and not the essence the, the, the facts of the matter but then Satan moves into what we would commonly just think of as a lie or a deception we tend to think two-dimensionally a lie is when someone says something they know to be false for you know, nefarious means. But that's actually the third step. You you don't even... Deception begins before you actually get to the direct lie. But notice what Satan said. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. That's a direct contradiction to what God had said. He blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. Jesus would later say, you are of your father the devil, talking to the unbelieving Jewish leaders in his day, during his life and ministry, and the lusts of your father you do. He was a murderer from the beginning, abode not in, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. See, Satan is a liar from the beginning. It's all he knows how to do. And, and, and here's his lie. If you want to boil down his lie... The one simple statement, here's the devil's lie. You can sin and get away with it. But death, according to God's word, is the penalty for sin. A little earlier in John chapter 8, after this encounter with the woman caught in adultery, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The more you know the truth, the easier it is to recognize a lie. We're going to talk about that again at the end. In uh, John's epistle, he says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. So step three is Satan directly contradicting truth. And what he's saying is that death and judgment are an illusion. Now Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted the truth. Instead, she sat passively by. She agreed with this falsehood when she should have disagreed with it. And so here's another way in which we see this gathering cloud of deception so pervasive. Uh, I I skipped over the verse uh, that I talked about in the first hour, uh, and I know some of you weren't here, but remember in 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, deception is getting worse and worse. The deceivers are getting worse and the ability to be deceived is getting worse and worse. That's a deadly combination. But one of the ways that we see that today is with this postmodern mantra of can't we just agree to disagree? How many of you have heard that? How many of you have used that? I have, but not anymore because I came to realize that that is not in accord with God's word. We don't need to agree to disagree. That's what Eve did. We need more people who are willing to disagree to agree. That's what takes real courage is to stand up when you hear a lie and say, that's not true. See, God's word certainly does not suggest that death and judgment are an illusion, the way Satan suggested they are. God's word says the wages of sin is death. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, at that moment, they came under the penalty of death. Death in scripture always means separation. We have a In our chart book, we have a chart that shows the biblical meaning of death and and all the different examples of biblical death. Like physical death, for example, is the separation of our soul from our physical body, right? Uh, Spiritual death is separation of mankind from God. There's now a gulf fixed between us. And nothing we can ever do can bridge that gap. We can't be good enough to overcome sin. Sin isn't about uh, your outward behavior. Sin's a condition of the heart. Did you realize you don't become a sinner when you sin? You sin because you're a sinner, <laughs> and that's what sinners do. You're born in, in dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians two one. David said, "From the moment of conception, I was a sinner." Okay. We're born sin. Sin is passed down through the blood. Romans five twelve tells us. Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. That's talking about the original sin. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they became separated, death, immediately. They didn't drop over physically dead, but they would experience physical death as a result of sin as well. There's, there's different kinds of death. But it always means separation. And they were then separated from God, evidenced actually a little bit later by the fact that they physical, their physical proximity was removed from the garden. But spiritually speaking, they became under the penalty of sin. God had said... And the day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. And so they were going to have to die. You know, a lot of people uh, that aren't believers or that are skeptics, and sometimes even believers have this false attitude, but they'll think, you know, God is so unfair that he would send somebody to hell. You know, How could a loving God send somebody to hell? That's what people will say. But you need to understand, that's not the biblical record. That's not at all what God's word says. God doesn't send anybody to hell. In fact, he's doing everything he possibly can to keep people out of hell. He warned us in the garden about the tree. Now, why did he do that? Was he just setting up some kind of a demented, uh, you know, test case that he was going to sit back and watch like some evil? No, no. He loved us so much, he wanted to warn us against that one tree. See, one of the things that The Imago Dei, being created in the image of God, means is that we have free will. We have free choice. He didn't just create a bunch of automatons or robots or whatever. He created people in his image, mankind, that had free will. And part of that was giving us a choice. So he said, you've got this whole garden, but watch out for that one tree because when you eat of it, you'll die. And and I don't want you to die. I love you. You're my creation. I want to fellowship with you forever. But what did we do? We marched right over, took a great big bite, and in that moment, it was a pivotal moment because a lot of people act as if that in that moment, God should have said, oh, don't worry about it, no big deal, you know, forget it, everybody makes mistakes, that death thing that I was talking about, I was just kidding, don't worry about it. And if God had done that, then that would have proven that God was untrustworthy, unfaithful, fickle, and a liar. So I don't know about you, but I'm glad That when we, because we were right there with Adam and Eve, make no mistake about it, uh, when we sinned, God didn't look the other way. God can never wink and nod at sin. So, but what he did do is take the extraordinary step then of providing a way out of the predicament we got ourselves. And God would have been totally just and righteous and holy within his attributes to cast every created person into hell at that moment. We sinned, and that's what he said. But God is also gracious and loving and merciful. So he sent his eternal Son, our Savior, to come to the earth, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He paid a price, paid the price for sin, paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. See, I could never pay your sin debt. You know why? Because I got enough sin on my own shoulders to pay for, right? I don't have room. I'm sold under sin, and so are you. But it took the perfect Lamb of God who had room on his shoulders for not just my sin, but your sin and the sin of the whole world, 1 John 2 two tells us. And he died, defeating death, hell, and the grave, rose again, purchasing life, as we just read about, and he offers it freely to all as a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that's the God of the Bible. And Satan was sitting here saying that there is no consequence. Death and judgment are an illusion Um, but God's word says otherwise. In fact, Jesus, in a verse you don't hear often taught these days in this days of a kinder, gentler, softer God, that we've sort of created God in the image of man today. Uh, But Jesus said, "I I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. See, the reason people go to hell is because God is a just God. He says, whosoever will come, let him drink of the water of life freely. God loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him has everlasting life. It's a universal offer, and it's a bona fide offer, and anyone, anyone can take the free gift of eternal life by faith alone. So if anybody ends up in hell, it's not on God. You know, I, I can offer you a gift, but if you don't take it, I can't force you to take it, because then it's not a gift anymore, right? If I'm forcing you to take it, it's no longer a gift. So a gift must be freely offered and it must be freely received. And those who reject the free gift of eternal life because of God's justice and because God is not a liar, he's not fickle, he's not unfaithful, he's not untrustworthy, he is who he says he is, he does what he says he's going to do, then you'll end up in hell. And uh, my book, uh, Top Ten Reasons that some people go to hell, and the one reason no one ever has to goes through 10 common uh, reasons why someone would reject the free gift of eternal life. Why don't people receive the good news? I mean, it's good news after all. That's what the gospel is. It's always just amazed me in over 30 years of ministry why people, you know, when you share the gospel with them, they reject it. Well, ultimately, the only reason anyone goes to hell is unbelief, but what would keep someone from not believing the gospel? And I, I talk about several reasons in there. But one of the saddest passages in Scripture is Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them, those who had not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. These are the books of works. See, a lot of people think they can impress a holy God with their good works, right? It's like they think God grades on the curve or something, like You know, you'll hear people say, well, I'm not perfect. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most. Well, good for you, but that's the problem. You're not perfect. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, unless you're perfect, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. So we need Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us by faith. And then when we stand before Holy God someday, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of Christ, and we're washed white as snow. So those who haven't received Christ's righteousness by faith, Romans 5.1 says we're justified by faith and therefore have peace with God. Those who haven't done that, they're left trying to meet the standard on their own. And, you know, you can have truckloads. You can have a whole convoy of 18 wheelers full of books containing all the good things you've done in life. But it doesn't matter. That's not enough. 99.9% righteous is not righteous enough. You have to be perfect. And the only way to be perfect is through the shed blood of Christ. And so these people are opening these books, and then he says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. You know, I don't think I gave much of an introduction to our ministry, but Not By Works Ministries was started in 1999 as an offshoot of my academic ministry, and then about 10 years ago we incorporated and became a, a full-time Ministry, but it's based on Titus three five, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So we're not saved uh, by works. He goes on, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And then and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One of the other charts that we have in our chart book is end times judgments. And this one is the final judgment, the great white throne. At the end of the millennium, Satan himself is cast into the lake of the eternal lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, by the way, Revelation, the passage uh, we were just in, goes on to say that the beast and the false prophet, which is the Antichrist and the second of command, are still there. Well, they were cast there a thousand years earlier after the Battle of Armageddon, and they're still there being tormented. So don't let anybody tell you that the, the ultimate punishment is simply annihilationism or you just cease to exist. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word means what it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But nobody has to be. Nobody has to be. It's a simple matter of trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. So back to verse 4. Again, the serpent... He said, you shall not surely die. That's a lie. That's a blatant lie. But his mode of operation for deception doesn't stop there. So he starts by questioning truth. Then he sort of shifts and twists truth a little bit. Then he directly contradicts truth. But then he shifts the focus from truth to perception. In other words, he pretends to get inside the mind of God and tell Eve why God said what he said. This is so classic uh, today in this age of political correctness and deconstructionism and so forth. But he goes on to say, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's just trying to keep something from you. He's holding out on you. He's got an ulterior motive. He wasn't just looking out for your protection. He wasn't just guarding you and warning you. your own safety out of his love, he had a deceptive motive himself. The text never says anything about that. And so he shifts the focus from truth to perception and begins to imply that perception is more important than reality. We touched on this a little bit already when he begins to subtly misrepresent the truth. But that's the day and age that we live in today. He's still doing the same thing 6,000 years later. Reality doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. We live in an age of virtual reality rather than real reality. The fact that we even have to say real reality should tell you something about the age in which we live. What matters is perception today. It's style over substance, form over function. The makeup man is more important than the speechwriter. That's why mainstream media, which, as we talked about in the first hour, is completely controlled, has been for decades, is just a bunch of, you know, good-looking make people made up and reading teleprompters, you know. Take away their teleprompter, they couldn't put two sentences together. It's an age of speculation rather than empirical evidence. People have little use for facts anymore. It's very difficult these days to look beyond the presentation, the style, to the facts of the matter. But we need to remember what John Adams said, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. This tendency to ignore facts in favor of perception manifests itself in a number of contexts, but it certainly is a key factor in this spirit of the Antichrist today. Ben Shapiro, conservative pundit today in his book said it much more bluntly than John Adams did. Facts don't care about your feelings. What matters are facts. So we've got to keep the focus on truth, facts, and not concern ourselves overly with perception. And then the full circle when it comes to the end is to then invent entirely new meaning for truth. To invent new meaning for truth. Satan redefined the plain meaning of God's words to suit his own needs first he begins to question god's motives well here's why god said this you know and how many times have you found yourself by the way in that type of discussion where you say something and then someone says well here's what you meant right and you're like no that's not what i meant i'm just i'm just saying it right and it's a real it's a real issue uh, but he, if you go back to verse 5, he simply put words in God's mouth blatantly. You shall be as God's. And God didn't say anything remotely resembling that. And yet Satan invents new meaning to God's words. So think about it. When God said, if you eat of that fruit, you'll die, what God really meant is, you will be like God's. <laughs> I mean, there's not even a remote correspondence between those two things. And yet through this fivefold process, Satan has come all the way, starts by questioning it, making you doubt it, misrepresenting it, boldly contradicting it, and then sort of coming full circle to this is something entirely new, and he turns it on its head. That's why the Bible says he he masquerades as an angel of light, right? It's just, everything's just the opposite of him. So the gathering cloud of deception that is intensifying every day as Satan and his co-conspirators seek to take over the world is probably most profoundly seen in this attack on language. Because if, if language is destroyed, it's called the deconstruction of language, then it's it's pretty much game over. I mean, how can you communicate? Remember, it's it's words that articulate the gospel. So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. You can't believe the gospel if you can't hear the gospel or read it or whatever. You have to have words. But if words don't mean anything, uh, it, it's you know Satan's won the battle pretty much, and that's why the atheist German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, "I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar." He understood even way back then that if we if we can destroy grammar, then it's it's done. Right. So words matter. So when you think about language, you've got words, and then you've got a listener. Now, where does meaning? reside? Is it in the words of the speaker or the words on the page or is it over here with the listener or the reader of the word? Is it somewhere in the middle? See, meaning always resides with the original speaker or author. That's a fundamental rule of language. See, secular Darwinian, you know, atheists try to convince us that, you know, man evolved over millions of years from a wet rock, eventually managed to crawl out of a cave and eventually you got smart enough to figure out some rudimentary cave-like language, and then over time we invented language. But what does the biblical record tell us? The biblical record tells us that God spoke the world into existence, and he didn't create man till the sixth day. So language actually predates mankind. That's the reason John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. So Satan completely invented new meaning for truth and tried to suggest that words have no meaning. And once we get to the point where words have no intrinsic meaning, it, it's game over. There's there's no hope. And so these are just, this is just one more sign of the times that Satan has conquered all of these frontiers of God the Creator. And the, the last frontier to conquer is life. And of course, he's already attacked Life. We're going to talk about that in the third hour. I'm going to give you some pretty stunning quotes after lunch by some leading Luciferians today that are ushering in this uh, Klaus Schwab one world system on on death and how, how much they love death and are trying to kill people. Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, you may have heard some of it, but I don't think you've heard it in this concentrated form. So he's conquering. He's he loves to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. But this is about creating life and creating language and creating gender and all these. And he's conquering all of those frontiers. And, and there's just, you know, that's why, again, I, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm not making this prediction. But if you've asked me for my studied opinion, I would say the coming of the Lord has got to be very soon because it just can't go on much longer this way. There's no other area for him uh, to conquer. So, again, uh How do we guard against this spirit of pretense, which is one of the spirits of uh, the Antichrist that I talk about in the book? Well, let's go back to 1 John 4 as we close. Uh, same place that tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So first of all, it's a good idea to study the topic of deception, be aware of Satan's methods, and begin to be aware of the lies all around us. It's, it's, but it's not only just a good idea, it's actually a command. In Greek, believe not here is a command. The word try is an imperative, and it's a command also. So these are both imperatives, and, and we're, we're commanded to, to test and to be aware and so forth. The word try is the Greek word dokimazo. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. It's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he tells us not to be asleep, he goes on to say, prove, same word, all things. Same word as try. Hold fast that which is good. In Ephesians 5, he says, you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, proving, trying, dakimatso, what is acceptable unto the Lord. That word walk, by the way, is also a command here in Ephesians 5. So we're commanded to walk as children of the light. How do we do that? By proving or finding out, discovering, trying what is the will of the Lord and, and truth. Uh, so go back to First John, he says in verse 2, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. I contextualized First John in the first hour and kind of gave you some historical background about why he was writing, but he was writing to combat false teaching about Christ. He says, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is th- that spirit of Antichrist where you've heard that it should come and even now is already in the world, the key verse for my uh, series. Ye are of God, however. The very next verse says, and, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So we must never be scared, but we need to be aware. We must never be scared, but we need to be prepared. I talked about in the first hour how Proverbs talks about, you know, watching, seeing trouble coming and, and and getting out of the way. You know, the, a fool you know, does nothing. The, the wise man gets out of the way. So we are supposed to be prepared, but never scared, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Because they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness, he goes on to say. And, and, and at the end of verse 4, or, Section in chapter 4, we are of God, he that knoweth God, heareth us, he that is not of God, heareth not. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it to what God's word says. So what's our response? Well, the verse I just quoted, uh, we either need to be prepared or not. Are you are you a prudent person that's seeing evil and, and being prepared for it? Or are you simply ignoring it and pretending like everything is fine? Be prepared. Be prepared. Are you ready? Are you prayed up, studied up in the Word, fighting to the last breath, doing what we are supposed to do, sharing Christ with others, proclaiming the good news of Christ, yet all the while recognizing that our enemy, the devil, is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. See, God's not given us a spirit of fear, so we're never to be scared. We are to be prepared, prepared for the tribulation that's coming. Jesus said that very night that he was betrayed, just hours before he would be crucified on the cross for our sins, in this world you shall have tribulation. So who are you counting on in a crisis? you counting on the government in a crisis? One paraphrase of Jeremiah the prophet, that 6th century prophet, said our leaders are stupid. That's a paraphrase. If that's who you're counting on, watch out. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint, and no one's more unfaithful than our leaders today. Are you counting on other people uh, to help you? The anonymous psalmist said in Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes nor in the Son of Man. Son of Man now is a reference to other human beings in this context. So don't put your trust in others because there's no help in them. Where's your trust? Well, David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So let's not ever forget whose side we're on. God's already won the battle. The victory's been won. Satan was defeated at the cross. He's still riding in anguish, thinking he can somehow bring this world under, into his domain. He won't, uh, and we need to remind him of that. Uh, but we also need to be wise and be sober and be vigilant and recognize what's happening right before our very eyes, because we don't know the Lord's timetable. If the Lord tarries his coming, our children, our grandchildren, may be living in a very different world than what we have become accustomed to living in here in these great United States of America. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, somber yet important reminder from your word about uh, what's coming and how... Before the great glorious day of the Lord, when you take uh, the throne and rule in perfect peace and justice, there will be troubling times. And I pray that we would sense the urgency of the hour, that we would be clear and accurate as we proclaim the gospel, that we would warn others and do our best to awaken people to this great deception of these last days. Lord, again, we've talked about the gospel throughout this message, but if there's anyone here, who does not know you? I pray that the Spirit of God would just convict them, get a hold of them, burden them of their need for a Savior, and that they would not leave this place today without trusting in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, as their only hope for eternal life. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.